0: I want to talk with you today about the role of the law and not only in the believer's life, but in the sinner's life. That is to say, particularly, the role of the law in converting sinners. I have been aware that if you spend enough time in Scripture and you read it contextually, and you read it thoroughly and prayerfully, that ultimately you cannot be a Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox. I'm also aware that if you spend enough time in Scripture, reading it prayerfully, contextually, and thoroughly, that you can scarcely be a Protestant. But what you will come out being is a lover of the truth. The truth as it is revealed in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And isn't that really all that matters? There are not going to be any Catholics in heaven. There are not going to be any Orthodox people in heaven. There are not going to be any Protestants in heaven. There are not going to be any Pentecostals in heaven. There will be, however, children of God in the new heaven, in the new earth. And so the primary focus of our attention is to grow in Christ and to grow in the truth and to escape that ever-present pitfall. What pitfall is that? The pitfall of stepping into tradition and defending our religious tradition. Above and beyond, and at the expense of the truth of Scripture. Now, I understand that it is the most comfortable thing to do. I understand that it is far more comfortable to simply just adopt a confession or a creed or the Book of Concord if you're Lutheran or the Westminster Confession of Faith if you're uh, Anglican or. Reformed or Presbyterian. I understand that if you're uh, a high Anglican, you may want to just adopt the 39 articles out of the, the Book of Common Prayer. But, beloved, that is only a, a bare sampling based upon the authors of those documents, how they view the faith at the time that they wrote it they aren't inspired they are faulty and they do have weaknesses and i don't doubt that they were written with good intentions and they no doubt have ser- served some good purpose but it's just too easy to fall into our tradition now why am i saying all this well uh, I, there are men that, and, and women that I respect thoroughly, who are good theologians, good teachers, people that I trust. Um, but from time to time, even one of these good people, if they are part of a tradition, I heard a good Lutheran Christian pastor say recently, a man that I trust, I believe in with all my heart that he's a true believer, Loves Christ with all of his heart. And yet he was talking again about the Lutheran and Protestant Reformation teaching that you have to teach the law. You have to preach the law to sinners before you can preach the gospel. Now, in the Lutheran world, they call that the uh, proper use of the law in the gospel proper distinction between the law and the gospel. In the Presbyterian and Reformed world, they just, and even now in many in the evangelical world, uh, really believe that you can't solve a problem that isn't yet a problem. That's their reasoning. If the sinner doesn't know that he or she is a sinner, then how are they ever going to want to come to Christ? And so the logic follows, and it's very human logic. It's not the logic of the Spirit of God. It's very good marketing, although they would probably be loath to refer to such. It's it's a very good logic to say that well uh, we have to help the sinner see that they're a sinner first. There is a lot of evangelistic programs in fact that teach that i know one in particular where you go street preaching or you talk to people in the elevator you talk to people at work around the water cooler and 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 you ask them you know let me ask you this have have you ever sinned well i don't know well let me ask you this have you ever um uh, lied well yeah yeah have you ever in your lifetime stolen anything, however small? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, then you have broken God's law. You have broken one of the Ten Commandments, and to break one of them is to break them all. And so you are a sinner before God. You stand before God, a sinner. And if you don't repent, you will go to hell. The law is convicting you of sin. And the poor person starts to form sweat beads hopefully they think uh, on their forehead and they get a little nervous and they say well what what, what, what do we have to do so well, god has sent jesus into the world to die for your sins so even though i did all these things and the law says i'm a sinner then then jesus took care of it that's right all you got to do is pray this simple prayer well let's pray the prayer so the person prays the prayer and they, the evangelist will assure them that they are now clean of all of their sins, and they can go skipping back to their cubicle thinking that they are now a Christian, when they are no more Christian than the water cooler they were standing at. That kind of evangelism is fallacious at best and unbiblical at worst and destructive. It, it leaves people inoculated To the gospel. It doesn't lead people um, in embracing the gospel. It leaves them inoculated thinking they have something that they do not have. And beloved, there is no worse position, no worse state than any human being can be in than to believe that they possess something they do not possess. And that's all that kind of evangelism does. It's fire engine evangelism. You tell somebody they're on their way to hell, and all you got to do is pray a simple prayer to make sure you don't go there, only a fool would not pray that prayer. Now, there are those who will tell you to take a flying leap anyway, so, you know, there are those. But generally speaking, if a person has a conscience, and most people do, and what, what have they got to lose? Just say the simple prayer, huh? Yeah, just say the simple prayer. So these there's these people, and there always have been, who have run around teaching that that somehow you have to frighten people. You have to terrorize them with the law before you can share the gospel with them. How will they... How will they feel motivated to come to Christ if they're not terrorized by their sin? Again, there is an element of human logic to it. It's classic marketing. Find a need and fill it. Better yet, create a need and fill it. Now, that's not to say that the unbeliever is not in sin. Of course they are. They're dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 make that very clear that they are dead in trespasses and sins. They are under control of the evil one. They are by nature children of wrath. Their long-term prospects, their eternal prospects are not good. And the truth is, if they don't repent, if they don't come to the gospel, if they don't confess Jesus as Lord and Savior in true repentance, they will perish. But the question is not whether the sinner is a sinner. The question is is whether the law converts sinners. And the truth is, The law does not convert sinners. It's interesting that my my good Lutheran and Protestant uh, Reformed and Presbyterian friends, they will maintain, they will fight to the death to maintain the fact that man is not simply uh, sick, he is dead in trespasses and sins and yet they will take the law and preach the law to a corpse because that person is a corpse and they simply cannot respond to stimulus the legal stimulus of the law and yet they will attempt it and what all they end up doing is manipulating an unsuspecting sinner into taking the vaccine of their simple prayer so they can believe that somehow they are now okay with God because they said the simple prayer by the water cooler or by the front door or in the playground or at a stadium or at the front of the church on Sunday night. Now, where did this come from? Where did this notion that somehow you have to preach the law? Well, let me just tell you. It came from the state church in Europe. Most recently. That's where it originated throughout church history. The state church... And Calvin developed a doctrine of the invisible church and in the um, um, physical church, the, the 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 church you can see, the visible church, the invisible and the visible church. And because the church, state church, was a, a a mixture of clearly unbelieving people, unregenerate people, who were in the church, who were obligated to attend the church, who were obligated to be baptized obligated to baptize their children because to be a citizen of the state was to be a Christian of that uh, Christian state. You didn't have a choice. You were to be baptized and you were to baptize your children. And so, and Luther resisted this. Luther didn't want this. In fact, at one point he wanted two churches, he wanted, he wanted, if you will, a, a morning service for genuine Christians and then a late morning service for those who are just good church goers. But that didn't work. He understood that the state church system as it existed did not lend itself to being truly the body of Christ, being those under the new covenant, we're all our regenerate people. So, there they are. Switzerland, Geneva, Wittenberg, London, the churches of the Reformation fallen back into the state church, and with all of its nominalism and spiritual mediocrity. So that by the uh, second or third generation after the Reformation, all we really had was a bunch of dead orthodoxy. But what we did have is a lot of sinners. And you had a lot of sinful behavior. And you can't have that in the church. And so it seemed right then to begin to talk about the law. They began to hang the Ten Commandments in the hallways, to begin to recite the Ten Commandments in the um, uh, liturgy. So the law became a topic, a regular topic, within the church. And the law does serve as a restraining influence, I will grant you that, I mean, someone who's regularly exposed to a reading of the Ten Commandments, even an unbeliever, may be less likely by the powers of the natural conscience to act out, at least publicly, in the grosser moral sins. So it accomplished a type of sanitation, sanitization, I should say, of the church. There was no sanctification. There was scarcely a regenerate person after the second and third generation. But there was a sanitized routine, a liturgy in which the commandments were read, the, the um, catechisms were filled with the law of God, the Westminster Confession of Faith eventually taught the law of God. And so it began to be reasonable then, as more evangelistic efforts came about, especially through John Wesley and those like him, that you, sh- you should have to preach the law to people, the terrors of the law, in order to help the sinners feel guilty so that they would be more willing To become a Christian. But that's not the gospel, folks. That's not the New Testament way of evangelism. And so I heard this man today making some very good points. I rejoiced to be listening to him. Until he said, You you have to preach the law before you can preach the gospel, or else how will the sinner ever know that they're a sinner? Well, <laughs> we don't depend. That's a Pelagian doctrine, folks. And Pelagius was a 5th century monk who believed that grace was not necessary. He was a heretic. And his teaching, his spirit, never left the church. If you really believe that a sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, and is is unable to respond to stimuli, spiritual stimulus, then you ought not be preaching the law to that person. You ought to be preaching the gospel. You ought to be preaching that which comes, imparts faith by the Spirit. In other words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word concerning Christ not the word concerning Moses this is this may seem like I'm splitting hairs a little bit here but but I'm really not underneath this mindset that we have to preach the law is a whole iceberg <laughs> we're only talking about the tip of the iceberg Underneath it is this this whole iceberg of thinking that somehow the law is still got its chains wrapped around even the life of the believer. Read the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's there. The good news is this in every generation, including the Reformation. There were churches that formed who preached the gospel, who emphasized that the church was made up of regenerate people. The body of Christ were the body of Christian people. They didn't hang out signs up front and say, Everyone welcome. It wasn't a state church. Many of those people suffered horribly at the hands of the state church. Sometimes the state viewed these churches as treasonous and persecuted them and even put them to death accordingly. There's a document called the Martyr's Mirror, and it documents The untold numbers of cases, thousands of cases of men and women in the early years of the Reformation who were converted by the preaching of the gospel, oftentimes at at the uh, preaching of the reformers themselves. Ulrich Zwingli, for instance, in Switzerland, preached out of the New Testament, the Greek New Testament. Hundreds were converted. And they took him seriously and began to live according to the gospel. And then the state, Magisterium, came down on him and told Zwingli, no, you to to know, you're going to have to keep baptizing children. And when Zwingli at first resisted, he conceded and he came up with a whole theology, a whole fabricated theology, in order to support infant baptism. in their covenant of grace, and brought forward the Abrahamic covenant. Instead of it being fulfilled, the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in the new covenant, which is what was originally taught, and is taught by the New Testament, and what the New Testament church taught, that all previous covenants, all previous biblical covenants, was fulfilled in the new covenant. Zwingli instead and his associates and then those who followed him developed a system of theology that fabricated a covenant of grace as well as a covenant of works and a covenant of redemption, but a primarily covenant of grace that began at the fall, which served as an overarching covenant which allowed then for them to take the Abrahamic covenant, bring it forward, apply the uh, practice of circumcision as infant baptism. In other words, they committed the Galatian heresy. (laughs) I know this may rattle some of you, but this is the truth, folks. And I'm too old to say anything but that these days. I've been a Christian for 45 years, and I've had to live through some of the longest, windest, rottenest teaching. I've had to fight my way out of the fog so many times. And protect my wife and family and I from the the wiles of the enemy being touted as theology. And you, so a good read of church history will will affirm everything I just told you. By the way, so it's not you don't have to take my opinion for it. If you look at church history, you'll discover that that's exactly what happened with Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. So there have always been those who felt that they wanted to be teachers of the law. The law can be very seductive to the egos of fallen man, to the flesh. The law can be very seductive to some men and women who think that they want to be teachers of the law, who think, in fact, that they can keep the law, I guess, they are observers of the law paul spoke about that in 1st timothy in 1st timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 7 he says this as i urged you when i went into macedonia stay there in ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, note this now, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about, or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for, for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, immoral for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which He entrusted to me. So the law does exist to expose sin. The law does expose sin. It can serve as an instrument to restrain sin. But the law can't convert anybody. The law will will reveal sin for what it is. But we can't preach the law expecting someone's going to be converted by it. Nor do we want to be teachers of the law. Now let me give you some other examples. So the question is this. Was it, or did the apostles preach the law before they proclaimed the gospel? Did they? That would be the question to ask. Did the, what did the apostles do? Did they go around telling people that they better obey the Ten Commandments, and if they can't, they're going to hell, and they better receive Jesus? What What did they do? Well, I won't take all your time to read these things, but I can tell you that in Acts chapter 2, Peter did not preach the law, and 3,000 were converted that day. In Acts chapter 4, when he preached again before the Sanhedrin, before the, the, the council, he did not preach the law. Now watch this. In Acts chapter 10, when he preached to Cornelius, he did not preach the law. What did, Jesus, uh, what did Peter do? In Acts chapter 10, Peter went to Cornelius, the Roman, and preached Jesus, is what he did. He didn't go and say, well, you Gentiles, you've, uh, you've had a free pass up until now, but now you're going to have to uh, come under the law and be convicted by the law, so you can realize your your need for Christ. That's not what he said at all. He told Cornelius and those gathered with Cornelius that day, in Acts 10.34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of, province of, Judah, or Judea, throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit in power By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, let me interject not one word about the Ten Commandments. Verse 44 While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard this message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with him, them for a few days. Quote. That was the first Gentile mission. And if Peter was ever going to go loaded for bear with the law and the Ten Commandments under one tablet under each arm, it would have been then. But he said ne'er a word. Instead, he preached Jesus. Very important to understand. Now, the same thing happened in Lystra with Paul and Barnabas. They preached to a crowd. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul preached to the, uh, the people in Athens, to the gathering in Athens, he mentioned not one word about the law of Moses and how much sinners these people were and how that they uh, needed to understand that the law convicted them of sin and that if they didn't receive Jesus, they were going to hell and, and pray this simple prayer and so on and so on. That's not what Paul did. Instead, Paul used a very contextual, to use that word, sermon based upon that culture and appealed to them based upon their own religiosity to not think of God in the ways that they had in the past because he says in verse 29 Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooks such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead." Paul preached Christ and him crucified. He preached Christ and the resurrection, not the law. Later in Acts chapter 20, when Paul was about to leave Ephesus, he was warning the um, Ephesian elders that fierce wolves would come in and that they would not spare the flock. He reminded them how he had gone publicly from house to house, declaring both the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. They must turn to God in repentance. I am not arguing against repentance, folks. I'm arguing for New Testament evangelism. And we'll see in just a moment what I mean. So later on, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders and says to them that he's guilty, he's excuse me, he's free of the guilt of all men. He has no one's blood on his hands, for he never ceased or withdrew or shrank from preaching the whole counsel of God, the whole will of God, and not one word about the Mosaic Law to these Ephesian elders. And the same was true when he finally landed in Jerusalem, when he gave his own personal testimony. He didn't appeal to the law. He didn't say, look at me, I finally became, uh, uh, I was this miserable sinner before, now I'm not anymore. He just gave his own conversion testimony. Now, can the law make someone miserable? Absolutely. If you are religious, if you are caught up in some kind of religiosity where you think you have to earn your salvation, and you've got the Ten Commandments hanging around your neck, and you've got the Ten Commandments hanging on your wall, and you're being told to keep Sunday as the Sabbath, and you better tithe or you're under a curse. If you're being told that you have to keep the Jewish feast laws, Yeah, it can make you miserable. In fact, contrary to some popular opinions in the Reformation world, Romans 7 is a testimony by Paul of what it's like to be a Jew who honors the law and respects the law and simply can't keep it. How miserable it is to want to do the things of the law and do things differently find yourself doing one thing where you want to do something else. That's not a Christian testimony Paul is giving there. He's simply laying forth that the futility of trying to be reconciled to God on the basis of law. Every Jew, every good self-respecting Jew had a had love for the law, had a affection for the law. They, they were honored, to be the people of the law. But that doesn't mean they could keep it. That doesn't mean that they could keep it. And those who thought they could were hypocrites. You might remember at the end of Stephen's great sermon, in which he recounted the whole history of Israel on the footsteps of the temple, I think it was. In verse 51 of Acts chapter 7, he said, "'You stiff-necked people,' Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. That's as good as it gets, folks. Israel had the law, but could not and did not obey it. And those who thought they did were vile hypocrites. So what are we to do with all this? Well, let's turn to John 15. And we'll discover what New Testament, what New Testament evangelism actually looks like. And the fact is, I'm running out of time. So I think we're going to do this in a second part, a two-part. So let me just remind you of what we said today. There are those who teach that the terrors of the law are necessary to convert the sinner. That without the teaching and preaching of the terrors of the law, the person will feel no motivation to repent of their sins and become a Christian. What I'm saying to you today is that is simply not New Testament teaching. And let me close with this. Next time we're together on part two of this sermon. I will t- talk with you about John chapter fifteen, verse twenty six through chapter sixteen, verse fifteen, and what Jesus sets forth the work of the Holy Spirit. And he will talk about the work of the Spirit, improving the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin about righteousness, and about judgment. And Jesus says nothing about the Mosaic Law. But he does say that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict, not the law, and not you, in your manipulative evangelistic formulas. Only the Holy Spirit can convict one of sin adequately to bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, there have always been churches that have taught exactly what I'm saying. I'm not a lone ranger, thanks be to God. And let me close with just this thought. For instance, the first London Confession of Faith in 1646, the first London Confession of Faith in 1646, which was the Baptist Confession. And these people were persecuted horribly by the state Anglican Church, as well as by the Presbyterians. So they put together this confession of faith so that everyone would be aware of what they believed, because they were being accused of of believing some weird, strange things, because they weren't part of the state church. There are two articles I want to read with you real quick here. Article 24, it says this, Faith is ordinarily begotten by the preaching of the gospel or word of Christ, without respect to any power or agency in the creature. But it being wholly passive and dead in trespasses and sins, doth believe and is converted by no less power than that which raised Christ from the dead. Now, listen to Article 25. Quote, The preaching of the gospel to the conversion of sinners is absolutely free. No way requiring is absolutely necessary any qualifications, preparations, or terrors of the law, or preceding ministry of the law, but only and alone The naked soul, a sinner and ungodly, to receive Christ crucified, dead and buried and risen again, who was made a prince and a savior for such sinners as through the gospel shall be brought to believe on him. What a beautiful statement. There have been New Testament churches throughout church history. And just because the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and sadly many Protestant bodies add to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, add to the gospel, or take away from the gospel, or place demands on the shoulders of the sinner, that the New Testament no way places there doesn't mean that we should tolerate it beloved you're part of a tradition that is more interested in maintaining its tradition or providing you an easy path so that you don't have to discover the truth for yourself then I feel sorry for you I hope and I pray for you that God will give you the passionate the burning desire and the hunger for the truth, so that you will seek Him in the text, the Scripture. You will study the Scripture for yourself, contextually, prayerfully, and thoroughly, and discover. I went through that myself. It was, I had a lot of mixed emotions going through that season. I remember reading and listening to Scripture day in and day out at times and discovering all kinds of things that I had been taught for 20 years in my denomination that simply were not so when looked at the context of the proof text that they were giving me. But it's worth it. The truth is worth it, beloved. The truth in Jesus Christ is worth it. Whatever rejection, whatever dejection, and whatever bonds you must break with human tradition. And so in the next sermon on this topic, we'll look closer at the London Confession of Faith and what happened. Why that Confession of Faith of 1646 became the London Confession of Faith of 1689 and how it changed under the weight of tradition. And we'll look more at John 16 and the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about New Testament evangelism. Until then, may the Lord strengthen you, may the Lord give you a great hunger for his word, and may you be filled with his presence daily. Amen.